0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: A Dead Finger by Sabine Baring Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Davis Faraday. Why the National Gallery should not attract so many visitors as, say, the British Museum, I cannot explain. The latter does not contain much that, one would suppose, appeals to the interest of the ordinary sightseer. What knows such of prehistoric flints and scratched bones? Of Assyrian sculpture? Of Egyptian hieroglyphics? The Greek and Roman statuary is cold and dead. The paintings in the National Gallery glow with color and are instinct with life. Yet somehow a few listless wanderers saunter yawning through the National Gallery, whereas swarms pour through the halls of the British Museum and talk and pass remarks about the objects they are exposed of the date and meaning of which they have not the faintest conception. I was thinking of this problem and endeavoring to unravel it one morning whilst sitting in the room for English masters at the Great Collection in Trafalgar Square. At the same time, another thought forced itself upon me. I had been through the rooms devoted to foreign schools, and had then come into that given over Reynolds, Moreland, Gainsborough, Constable, and Hogarth. The morning had been for a while propitious, but towards noon a dense, umber-tinted fog had come on, making it all but impossible to see the pictures and quite impossible to do them justice. I was tired and so seated myself on one of the chairs and fell into the consideration, first of all, of why the National Gallery is not as popular as it should be, and secondly, how it was that the British school had no beginnings, like those of Italy and the Netherlands. We can see the art of the painter from its first initiation in the Italian peninsula and among the Flemings. It starts on its progress like a child, and we can trace every stage of its growth. Not so with English art. It springs to life in full and splendid maturity. Who were there before Reynolds and Gainsborough and Hogarth? The names of those portrait and subject painters who have left their canvases upon the walls of our country houses were those of foreigners, Holbein, Neller, Van Dyke, and Lilly for portraits, and Monnier for flower and fruit pieces landscapes figure subjects were all importations none homegrown how came that about was there no limmer that was native was it that fashion trampled on homegrown pictorial beginnings as it flouted and spurned native music here was food for contemplation dreaming in the brown fog looking through it without seeing its beauties at hogarth's painting of lavinia fenton as polly Peacham without wondering how so indifferent a beauty could have captivated the Duke of Bolton and held him for thirty years, I was recalled to myself and my surroundings by the strange conduct of a lady who had seated herself on the chair next to me, also discouraged by the fog, and awaiting its dispersion. I had not noticed her particularly. At the present moment I do not remember particularly what she was like. So far as I can recollect, she was middle-aged and quietly, yet well-dressed. It was not her face nor her dress that attracted my attention and disturbed the current of my thoughts. The effect I speak of was produced by her strange movements and behavior. She was sitting listless, probably thinking of nothing at all, or nothing in particular, when, in turning her eyes round and finding that she could see nothing of the paintings, she began to study me. This did concern me greatly. A cat may look at the king, but to be contemplated by a lady is a compliment sufficient to please any gentleman. It was not gratified vanity that troubled my thoughts, but the consciousness that my appearance produced, first of all a startled surprise, then undisguised alarm, and finally indescribable horror. Now a man can sit quietly leaning on the head of his umbrella and glow internally, warmed and illumined by the consciousness that he is being surveyed with admiration by a lovely woman, even when he is middle-aged and not fashionably dressed. But no man can maintain his composure when he discovers himself to be an object of aversion and terror what was it i passed my hand over my chin and upper lip thinking it not impossible that i might have forgotten to shave that morning and in my confusion not considering that the fog would prevent the lady from discovering neglect in this particular had it occurred which it had not i am a little careless perhaps about shaving when in the country but when in town never The next idea that occurred to me was a smut. Had a London black curdled in that dense pea-soup atmosphere descended on my nose and blackened it, I hastily drew my silk handkerchief from my pocket, moistened it, and passed it over my nose, and then each cheek. I then turned my eyes into the corners and looked at the lady to see whether by this means I had got rid of what was objectionable in my personal appearance. Then I saw that her eyes, dilated with horror, were riveted, not on my face, but on my leg, My leg! What on earth could that harmless member have in it so terrifying? The morning had been dull, there had been rain in the night, and I admit that on leaving my hotel I had turned up the bottoms of my trousers. That is a proceeding not so uncommon, not so outrageous as to account for the stony stare of the woman's eyes. If that were all, I would turn my trousers down. Then I saw her shrink from the chair on which she sat to one further removed from me, but still with her eyes fixed on my leg about the level of my knee. She had let fall her umbrella and was grasping the seat of her chair with both hands as she backed from me. I need hardly say that I was greatly disturbed in mind and feelings and forgot all about the origin of the English schools and painters and the question why the British Museum is more popular than the National Gallery. Thinking that I might have been spattered by a hansom whilst crossing Oxford Street, I passed my hand down my side hastily with a sense of annoyance and all at once touched something cold, clammy that sent a thrill to my heart and made me start and take a step forward. At the same moment, the lady, with a cry of horror, sprang to her feet and with raised hands fled from the room, leaving her umbrella where it had fallen. There were other visitors to the picture gallery besides ourselves who had been passing through the saloon, and they turned at her cry and looked in surprise after her. The policeman stationed in the room came to me and asked what had happened. I was in such agitation that I hardly knew what to answer. I told him that I could explain what had occurred little better than himself. I had noticed that the lady had worn an odd expression and had behaved in most extraordinary fashion, and that he had best take charge of her umbrella and wait for her return to claim it. This questioning by the official was vexing, as it prevented me from at once and on the spot investigating the cause of her alarm and mine. Hers is something she must have seen on my leg, and mine is something I had distinctly felt creeping up my leg. The numbing and sickening effect on me of the touch of the object I had not seen was not to be shaken off at once. Indeed, I felt as though my hand were contaminated and that I could have no rest till I had thoroughly washed the hand and, if possible, washed away the feeling that had been produced. I looked on the floor, I examined my leg, but saw nothing. As I wore my overcoat, it was probable that in rising from my seat the skirt had fallen over my trousers and hidden the thing, whatever it was, I therefore hastily removed my overcoat and shook it, then looked at my trousers. There was nothing whatever on my leg, and nothing fell from my overcoat when shaken. Accordingly, I reinvested myself, and hastily left the gallery, then took my way as speedily as I could, without actually running, to the Charing Cross station and down the narrow way leading to the Metropolitan, where I went into Faulkner's Bath and Hairdressing Establishment and asked for hot water to thoroughly wash my hand and well-soap it. I bathed my hand in water as hot as I could endure it, employed carbolic soap, and then after having a good brush down, especially on my left side where my hand had encountered the object that had so affected me, I left. I had entertained the intention of going to the princess's theater that evening and of securing a ticket in the morning, but all thought of theater going was gone for me. I could not free my heart from the sense of nausea and cold that had been produced by the touch. I went into Gatti's to have lunch and ordered something, I forget what but when served, I found that my appetite was gone. I could eat nothing. The food inspired me with disgust. I thrust it from me untasted, and after drinking a couple glasses of claret, left the restaurant and returned to my hotel. Feeling sick and faint, I threw my overcoat over the sofa back and cast myself on my bed. I do not know that there was any particular reason for my doing so, but as I lay, my eyes were on my great coat. The density of the fog has passed away, And there was light again, not of first quality, but sufficient for a Londoner to swear by, so that I could see everything in my room, through a veil, darkly. I do not think my mind was occupied in any way. About the only occasions on which, to my knowledge, my mind is actually passive or inert is when crossing the channel in the foam from Dover to Calais, when I am always in every weather, abjectly seasick and thoughtless. But as I now lay on my bed, uncomfortable, squeamish, without knowing why, I was in the same inactive mental condition, but not for long. I saw something that startled me. First, it appeared to me as if the lapet of my overcoat pocket were in movement, being raised. I did not pay much attention to this, as I supposed that the garment was sliding down onto the seat of the sofa from the back, and that this displacement of gravity caused the movement I had observed. But this, I soon saw, was not the case. That which moved the lapet was something in the pocket that was struggling to get out. I could see now that it was working its way up the inside, and that when it reached the opening, it lost balance and fell down again. I can make this out by the projections and indentations in the cloth, these moved as the creature, or whatever it was, worked its way up to the lining. "'A mouse,' I said, and forgot my seediness. I was interested. The little rascal. However did it, he contrived to seat himself in my pocket.' and I have worn that overcoat all morning. But no, it was not a mouse. I saw something white poke its way out from under the lapet, and in another moment, an object was revealed that, though revealed, I could not understand, nor could I distinguish what it was. Now, roused by curiosity, I raised myself on my elbow. In doing this, I made some noise. The bed creaked. Instantly, the something dropped to the floor, lay outstretched for a moment to recover itself then began, with the motions of a maggot, to run along the floor. There is a caterpillar called the measurer because when it advances, it draws its tail up to where its head is and then throws forward its full length and again draws up its extremity, forming at each time a loop, and with each step measuring its total length. The object I now saw on the floor was advancing precisely like the measuring caterpillar. It had the color of a cheese maggot, and in length was about three and a half inches. It was not, however, like a caterpillar, which is flexible throughout its entire length, but this was, as it seemed to me, jointed in two places, one joint being more conspicuous than the other. For some moments, I was so completely paralyzed by the astonishment that I remained motionless, looking at the thing as it crawled along the carpet, a dull green carpet with darker green, almost black flowers in it. It had, as it seemed to me, a glossy head distinctly marked but as the light was not brilliant i could not make out very clearly and moreover the rapid movements prevented close scrutiny presently with a shock still more startling than it produced by its apparition at the opening of the pocket of my great coat i became convinced that what i saw was a finger a human forefinger and that the glossy head was no other than the nail the finger did not seem to have been amputated There was no sign of blood or laceration where the knuckle should be, but the extremity of the finger, or root rather, faded away to indistinctness, and I was unable to make out the root of the finger. I could see no hand, no body behind this finger, nothing whatever except a finger that had little token of warm life in it, no coloration as through blood circulated in it, and this finger was in active motion creeping along the carpet towards a wardrobe that stood against the wall by the fireplace. I sprang off the bed and pursued it. Evidently, the finger was alarmed, for it redoubled its pace, reached the wardrobe, and went under it. By the time I had arrived at the article of furniture, it had disappeared. I lit a Vesta match and held it beneath the wardrobe that was raised above the carpet by about two inches on turned feet, but I could see nothing more of the finger. I got my umbrella and thrust it beneath and raked forwards and backwards, right and left, and raked out flue and nothing more solid. I packed my poor manteau next day and returned to my home in the country. All desire for amusement in town was gone, and the faculty to transact business had departed as well. A linger and qualms had come over me, and my head was in a maze. Mm-hmm. I was unable to fix my thoughts on anything. At times I was disposed to believe that my wits were deserting me, at others that I was on the verge of a severe illness. Anyhow, whether likely to go off my head or not, or to take my bed, Home was the only place for me, and homeward I sped accordingly. On reaching my country habitation, my servant as usual, took my poor manteau to my bedroom, unstrapped it, but did not unpack it. I object to his throwing out the contents of my gladstone bag, not that there is anything in it that he may not see, that he puts my things where I cannot find them again. My clothes, he is welcome to place them where he likes and where they belong, and this latter he knows better than I do. But then I carry about with me other things in a dress suit and changes of linen and flannel. There are letters, papers, books, and the proper destinations of these are known only to myself. A servant has a singular and evil knack of putting away literary matter and odd volumes in such places that it takes the owner half a day to find them again. Although I was uncomfortable and my head in a whirl, I opened and unpacked my own pormento. As I was thus engaged, I saw something curled up in my collar box, the lid of which had gotten broken by a boot heel impinging on it. I had pulled off the damaged cover to see if my collars had been spoiled, when something curled up inside suddenly rose on end and leapt, just like a cheese jumper, out of the box, over the edge of the gladstone bag, and scurried away across the floor in a manner already familiar to me. I could not doubt for a moment what it was. Here was the finger again. It had come with me from London to the country. Whither it went in its run over the floor, I do not know. I was too bewildered to observe. Somewhat later, towards evening, I seated myself in my easy chair, took up a book, and tried to read. I was tired with the journey, with the knocking about in town, and the discomfort and alarm produced by the apparition of the finger. I felt worn out. I was unable to give my attention to what I read, and before I was aware, was asleep. Roused for an instant by the fall of a book from my hands, I speedily relapsed into unconsciousness. I am not sure that a doze in the armchair ever does good. It usually leaves me in a semi-stupid condition and with a headache. Five minutes in, a horizontal position on my bed is worth 30 in a chair. That is my experience. In sleeping in a sedentary position that the head is in difficulty... It drops forward or lolls on one side or the other and has to be brought back into a position in which the line to the center of gravity runs through the trunk, otherwise the head carries the body over in a sort of general capsize out of the chair onto the floor. I slept, on the occasion of which I am speaking, pretty healthily because deadly weary, but I was brought to waking, not by my head falling over the arm of the chair and my trunk tumbling after it, but by a feeling of cold extending from my throat to my heart. When I awoke, I was in a diagonal position with my right ear resting on my right shoulder and exposing the left side of my throat, and it was here, where the jugular vein throbs, that I felt the greatest intensity of cold. At once, I shrugged my left shoulder, rubbing my neck with the collar of my coat in so doing. Immediately, something fell off upon the floor, and again I saw the finger. My disgust, horror, were intensified when I perceived that it was dragging something after it, which might have been an old stocking in which i took at first glance for something of the sort the evening sun shone in through my window in a brilliant gold ray that lighted the object as it scrambled along with this illumination i was able to distinguish what the object was it was not easy to describe it but i will make the attempt the finger i saw was solid and material what it drew after it was neither or was in a nebulous protoplasmic condition The finger was attached to a hand that was curdling into matter, and in process of acquiring solidity, attached to the hand was an arm in a very filmy condition, and this arm belonged to a human body in a still more vaporous, immaterial condition. This was being dragged along the floor by the finger, just as a silkworm might pull after it the tangle of its web. I could see legs and arms and head and coattail tumbling about and interlacing and disentangling again in a promiscuous manner. There were no bone, no muscle, no substance in the figure, the members were attached to the trunk, which was spineless, but they had evidently no functions, and were wholly dependent on the finger which pulled them along in a jumble of parts as it advanced. In such confusion did the whole vaporous matter seem, that I think, I cannot say for certain it was so, but the impression left on my mind was, that one of the eyeballs was looking out at a nostril, and the tongue lolling out of one of the ears. It was, however, only for a moment that I saw this germ body. I cannot call by another name that which had not more substance than smoke. I saw it only so long as it was being dragged athwart the ray of sunlight. The moment it was pulled jerkily out of the beam into the shadow beyond, I could see nothing of it, only the crawling finger. I had not sufficient moral energy or physical force in me to rise, pursue, and stamp on the finger and grind it with my heel into the floor. Both seemed drained out of me. What became of the finger, whither it went, how it managed to discreet itself, I do not know. I had lost the power to inquire. I sat in my chair, chilled, staring before me into space. Please, sir, a voice said. That's Mr. Squarebelow, electrical engineer. Eh? I looked dreamily around. My valet was at the door. Please, sir, the gentleman would be glad to be allowed to go over the house and see all the electrical apparatus is in order. Oh, indeed. Yes, show him up. I had recently placed the lighting of my house in the hands of an electrical engineer, a very intelligent man, Mr. Square, for whom I had contracted a sincere friendship. He had built a shed with a dynamo out of sight and had entrusted the laying of the wires to subordinates, as he had been busy with other orders and could not personally watch every detail.
0: To find out if it's right for you. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: But he was not the man to let anything pass unobserved, and he knew that electricity was not a force to be played with. Bad or careless workmen will often insufficiently protect the wires or neglect the insertion of the lead, which serves as a safety valve in the event of the current being too strong. Houses may be set on fire, human beings fatally shocked by the neglect of a bad or slovenly workman. The apparatus for my mansion was just completed, but Mr. Square had come to inspect it and make sure that it was all right. He was an enthusiast in the matter of electricity and saw for it a vast perspective the limits of which could not be predicted. All forces, said he, are correlated. When you have force in one form, you may just turn it into this or that as you like. In one form, it is motive power. In another, it is light. In another, heat. Now we have electricity for illumination. We employ it, but not as freely as in the States, for propelling vehicles. Why should we have horses drawing our buses? We should use only electric trams. Why do we burn coal to warm our shins? there is electricity which throws out no filthy smoke as does coal why should we let the tides waste their energies in the Thames? in other estuaries there we have nature supplying us free gratis and for nothing with all the force we want for propelling for heating for lighting i will tell you something more my dear sir said mr square i have mentioned but three modes of force and have instanced but a limited number of uses to which electricity may be turned how is it with photography Is not electric light becoming an artistic agent? I bet you, said he. Before long, it will become a therapeutic agent as well. Oh yes, I have heard of certain impostors with their life belts. Mr. Square did not relish with this little deg I gave him. He winced but returned to the charge. We don't know how to direct it all right, that is all, said he. I haven't taken the matter up, but others will, I bet and we shall have electricity used as freely as now we use powders and pills. I don't believe in doctor stuff myself. I hold that disease lays hold of a man because he lacks physical force to resist it. Now, is it not obvious that you are beginning at the wrong end when you attack the disease? What you want is to supply force, make up for the lack of physical power, and force is force wherever you find it. Here motive, there illuminating, and so on. I don't see why physicians should not utilize the tide rushing out under London Bridge for restoring the feeble vigor of all who are languid and a prey to disorder in the metropolis. It will come to that, I bet. And that is not all. Force is force, everywhere. Political, moral force, physical force, dynamic force, heat, light, tidal waves, and so on. All are one. All is one. In time we shall know how to galvanize into aptitude and moral energy. All the limp and crooked consciences and wills that need taking in hand, and such there always will be in modern civilization. I don't know how to do it, I don't know how it will be done, but in the future the priest as well as the doctor will turn electricity on as his principal, nay, his only agent, and he can get his force anywhere, out of the running stream, out of the wind, out of the tidal wave. I'll give you an instance, continued Mr. Square, chuckling and rubbing his hands, to show you the great possibilities in electricity used in a crude fashion. In a certain great city far west in the States, a go-ahead place, too, more so than New York, that had electric trams all up and down and along the roads to everywhere. The union men working for the company demanded that the non-unionists should be turned off. But the company didn't see it. Instead, it turned off the union men. It had up its sleeve a sufficiency of the others and filled all places at once. Union men didn't like it and passed word that at a given hour on a certain day every wire was to be cut. The company knew this by means of its spies and turned on, ready for them, three times the power into all the wires. At the fixed moment, up the poles went the strikers to cut the cables and down they came a dozen times quicker than they went up. Then there came wires to the hospitals from all quarters for stretchers to carry off the disabled men, some with broken legs, arms, ribs, Two or three had their necks broken. I reckon the company was wonderfully merciful. It didn't put on sufficient force to make cinders of them, then and there. Possibly opinion might not have liked it. Stopped the strike, did that. Great moral effect, all done by electricity. In this manner Mr. Square was wont to rattle on. He interested me, and I came to think that there might be something in what he said, that his suggestions were not mere nonsense. I was glad to see mr square enter my room shown in by my man i did not rise from my chair to shake his hand for i had not sufficient energy to do so in a languid tone i welcomed him and signed to him to take a seat mr square looked at me with some surprise why what's the matter he said you seem unwell knock out the flu have you i beg your pardon the influenza every third person is crying out that he has it and the sale of eucalyptus is enormous not that eucalyptus is any good. Influenza microbes, indeed. What care they for eucalyptus? We've gone down some steps of the ladder of life since I last saw you, Squire. How do you account for that? I hesitated about the mentioning the extraordinary circumstances that had occurred. But Square was a man who would not allow any beating about the bush. He was downright and straight, and in ten minutes, he got the entire story out of me. Rather boisterous for your nerves at a crawling finger said he. It's a queer story taken on end. Then he was silent, considering. After a few minutes, he rose and said, I'll go and look at the fittings, and then I'll turn this little matter of yours over again and see if I can't knock the bottom out of it. I'm kinder fond of those sort of things. Mr. Square was not a Yankee, but he had lived for some time in America and affected to speak like an American. He used expressions, terms of speech common in the States, but had none of the transatlantic twang. He was a man absolutely without affection in every other particular. This was his sole weakness, and it was harmless. The man was so thorough in all he did that I did not expect him to return immediately. He was certain to examine every portion of the dynamo engine and all the connections and burners. This would necessarily engage him for some hours. As the day was nearly done, I knew he could not accomplish what he wanted that evening and accordingly gave orders that a room should be prepared for him. Then, as my head was full of pain and my skin was burning, I told my servant to apologize for my absence from dinner and tell Mr. Square that I was really forced to return to my bed by sickness and that I believed I was about to be prostrated by an attack of influenza. The valet, a worthy fellow who had been with me for six years, was concerned at my appearance and urged me to allow him to send for a doctor. I had no confidence in the local practitioner, and if I sent for another from the nearest town, i should offend him and a row would perhaps ensue so i declined if i were really in for an influenza attack i knew about as much as my any doctor how to deal with it quining quinine that was all i bade my man light a small lamp lower it so as to give sufficient illumination to enable me to find some lime juice at my bed head and my pocket handkerchief and to be able to read my watch When he had done this, I bade him leave me. I lay in bed, burning, racked with pain in my head and my eyeballs on fire. Whether I fell asleep or went off my head for a while, I cannot tell. I may have fainted. I have no recollection of anything after going to bed and taking a sip of lime juice that tasted to me like soap, till I was roused by a sense of pain in my ribs, a slow, gnawing, torturing pain, waxing momentarily more intense. In half-consciousness, I was partly dreaming— and apparently aware of actual suffering. The pain was real, but in my fancy I thought that a great maggot was working its way into my side between my ribs. I seemed to see it. It twisted itself half round, then reverted to its former position again, twisted itself, moving like a braddle, not like a gimlet, which latter forms a complete revolution. This obviously must have been a dream, hallucination only, as I was lying on my back and my eyes were directed towards the bottom of my bed. The coverlet and blankets and sheet intervened between my eyes and the side. But in fever, one sees without eyes, and in every direction, and through all obstructions. Roused thoroughly by an excruciating twinge, I tried to cry out, and succeeded in throwing myself over on my right side, that which was in pain. At once I felt the thing withdrawn that was all in, if I may use the word, in between my ribs. And now I saw, standing beside the bed, a figure that had its arm under the bedclothes and was slowly removing it. The hand was leisurely drawn from under the coverings and rested on the eider-down coverlet with the forefinger extended. The figure was that of a man in shabby clothes with a sallow, mean face, a retreating forehead, and hair cut after the French fashion, and a mustache. The draws and chin were covered with a bristly growth as if shaving had been neglected for a fortnight. The figure did not appear to be thoroughly solid but to be of the consistency of curd and the face was of the complexion of curd as i looked at this object it withdrew sliding backward in an odd sort of manner and as though overweighted by the hand which was the most substantial indeed the only substantial portion of it though the finger retreated stooping yet it was no longer huddled along by the finger as if it had no material existence "'If the same, it had acquired a consistency and a solidity "'which it did not possess before. "'How it vanished, I do not know, nor whether it went. "'The door opened, and Square came in. "'What?' he explained with cheery voice. "'Influenza, is it?' "'I don't know. I think it's that finger again.' "'Now look here,' said Square. "'I'm not going to have that cuss at its pranks anymore. "'Tell me about it.' "'I was now so exhausted, so feeble.' I was not able to give a connected account of what had taken place, but squared to put me just a few pointed questions and elicited the main facts. He pieced them together in his own orderly mind, so as to form a connected whole. "'There is a feature in the case,' said he, "'that strikes me as remarkable and important. At first, a finger only, then a hand, then a nebulous figure attached to the hand, without backbone, without consistency. Lastly, a complete form, with consistency and with backbone.' but the latter in a gelatinous condition, and the entire figure overweighted by the hand, just as hand and figure were previously overweighted by the finger. Simultaneously with this compacting and consolidating of the figure came your degeneration and loss of vital force, and in a word, of health. What you lose, the object acquires, and what it acquires, it gains by contact with you. That's clear enough, is it not? I dare say, I don't know, I can't think. I suppose not. The faculty of thought is drained out of you. Very well. I must think for you, and I will. Force is force, and see if I can't deal with your visitant in such a way as will prove just as truly a moral dissuasive that employed on the Union men on strikein. Never mind where it was. That's not the point. Will you kindly give me some lime juice? I entreated. I sipped the acid draught, but without relief. I listened to Square, but without hope. I wanted to be left alone. I was weary of my pain, weary of everything, even of life. It was a matter of indifference to me whether I recovered or slipped out of its existence. "'It will be here again shortly,' said the engineer, as the French say, "'la petit vient manger. It has been at you thrice. It won't be content without another peck. And if it does get another, I guess it will pretty well about finish you.' Mr. Square rubbed his chin and then put his hands into his trouser pockets that was also a trick acquired in the states and an elegant one his hands when not actively occupied went into his pockets inevitably they gravitated thither ladies did not like square they said he was not a gentleman but it was not that he said or did anything off color only he spoke to them looked at them and walked with them always with his hands in his pockets i have seen a lady turn her back on him deliberately because of this trick standing now with his hands in his pockets he studied my bed and said contemptuously, Old-fashioned and bad four-poster. Oughtn't be allowed, I guess, unwholesome all the way around. I was not in a condition to dispute this. I like a four-poster with curtains at head and feet. Not that I ever draw them, but it gives a sense of privacy that is wanting in one of your half-tester beds. If there is a window at one's feet, one can lie in bed without the glare in one's eyes, and yet without darkening the room by drawing the blinds. There is much to be said for a four-poster— but this is not the place in which to say it. Mr. Square pulled his hands out of his pockets and began fiddling with the electric point near the head of my bed, attached a wire, swept it in a semicircle along the floor, then thrust the knob at the end into my hand in the bed. Keep your eye open, he said, and your hand shut and covered. If that finger comes again, tickling your ribs, try it with the point. I'll manage the switch from behind the curtain. Then he disappeared. I was too indifferent in my misery to turn my head and observe where he was. I remained inert, with the knob in my hand and my eyes closed, suffering and thinking of nothing but the shooting pains through my head and the aches in my loins and back and legs. Some time probably elapsed, before I felt the finger again at work at my ribs. It groped, but no longer bored. I now felt the entire hand, not a single finger, and the hand was substantial, cold, and clammy. I was aware, how I know not, that if the finger point reached the region of my heart on the left side, that the hand would, so to speak, sit down on it, with the cold palm over it, and then immediately my heart would cease to beat, and it would be as Square might express it, gone coon with me. In self-preservation, I brought up the knob of the electric wire against the hand, against one of the ringers, I think, and at once was aware of a rapping, squealing noise. I turned my head languidly and saw the form, now more substantial than before, capering in an ecstasy of pain, endeavoring fruitlessly to withdraw its arm from under the bedclothes and the hand from the electric point. At the same moment, Square stepped from behind the curtain with a dry laugh and said, I thought we should fix him. He has the coil about him and can't escape. Now let us drop to particulars. But I shan't let you off until I know all about you. The last sentence was addressed, not to me. "'but to the apparition. "'Thereupon he bade me to take the point away "'from the hand of the figure, being whatever it was, "'but to be ready with it at a moment's notice. "'He then proceeded to catch-eyes my visitor, "'who moved restlessly within the circle of the wire, "'but could not escape from it. "'It replied in a thin, squealing voice "'that sounded as if to come from a distance "'and had a querulous tone in it. "'I do not pretend to give all that was said. "'I cannot recollect everything that passed.' My memory was affected by my illness, as well as my body. Yet I prefer giving the scraps that I recollect to what Square told me he had heard. Yes, I was unsuccessful, always was. Nothing answered with me. The world was against me. Society was. I hate society. I don't like work neither, never did. But I like agitating against what is established. I hate the royal family. The landed interest. The Parsons. Everything that is, except the people that is. The unemployed. I always did. I couldn't get work as suited me. When I died, they buried me in a cheap coffin, dirt cheap, and gave me a nasty grave, cheap, and a service rattle away, cheap, and no monument. Didn't want none. Oh, there are lots of us. All discontented. Discontent. That's a passion, it is. It gets into the veins. It fills the brain. It occupies the heart. It's a sort of divine cancer that takes possession of the entire man and makes him dissatisfied with everything and hate everybody. But we must have our share of happiness at some time. We all crave for it in one way or other. Some think it's a future state of blessedness and so of hope and look to attain it, for hope is a cable and anchor that attaches to what is real. But when you have no hope of that sort, don't believe in any future state, you must look for happiness in life here. We didn't get it when we were alive, so we seek to procure it after we are dead. We can't do it if we can get out of our cheap and nasty coffins, but not till the greater part of us is moldered away. If a finger or two remains, that can work its way up to the surface. Those cheap deal coffins go to pieces quick enough. Then the only solid part of us left can pull the rest of us that has gone to nothing after it. Then we grope about after the living, the well-to-do if we can get at them, the honest working poor if we can't. We hate them too because they are content and happy. If we reach any of these and can touch them, then we can draw their vital force out of them into ourselves and recuperate at their expense. That was about what I was going to do with you, getting on famous. Nearly solidified into a new man and given another chance in life. But I've missed it this time, just my luck. Miss everything. Always have, except misery and disappointment. Get plenty of that. What are you all? Asked swear. Anarchists out of employ? Some of us go by that name, some by other designations. But we are all one and own allegiance to but one monarch, sovereign discontent. We are bred to have a distaste for manual work, and we grow up loafers, grumbling at everything and quarreling with society that is around us and the providence that is above us. And what do you call yourselves now? Call ourselves? Nothing. We are the same. In another condition, that is all. Folk once called us anarchists, nihilists, socialists, levelers. Now they call us the influenza. The learned talk of microbes and bacilli and bacteria, microbes, bacilli, and bacteria be blowed. WE ARE THE INFLUENZA, WE ARE THE SOCIAL FAILURES, THE GENERALLY DISCONTENTED, COMING UP OUT OF OUR CHEAP AND NASTY GRAVES IN THE FORM OF PHYSICAL DISEASE, WE ARE THE INFLUENZA. THERE YOU ARE, I GUESS, EXCLAIMED SQUARE triumphantly. DID I NOT SAY THAT ALL FORCES WERE CORRELATED? IF SO, THEN ALL NEGATIONS, DEFICIENCIES OF FORCE, ARE ONE IN THEIR SEVERAL MANIFESTATIONS. TALK OF DIVINE DISCONTENT AS A FORCE IMPELLING TO PROGRESS. RUBBISH, IT IS A PARALYSIS OF ENERGY. It turns all it absorbs into acid, to envy, spite, gall. It inspires nothing but rots the whole moral system. Here you have it, moral, social, political discontent in another form. Nay, aspect, that is all. What anarchism is the body politic? The influenza is the body physical. Do you see that? Yes, I believe I answered and dropped away into the land of dreams. I recovered. What Square did with the thing, I do not know, but believe that he reduced it again to its former negative and self-decomposing condition. End of a Dead Finger Recording by Davis Verity